0: Welcome to My Dog Hunts Podcast. I'm your host, Randy Shepard. I'm the owner and founder of MyDogHunts.com. My Dog Hunts is an online and personal chronicle of your upland bird dog's hunting career. I'd appreciate it if you'd log on to MyDogHunts.com. Maybe make some noise there and try to wake things up. No more traffic than My Dog Hunts attracts. I think I should have just named it the Lone Wolf Club. I've been upland bird hunting the Midwest for almost 50 years, and in the last 10 years I've also hunted Nevada, Oregon, Idaho, Arizona, New Mexico, and Oklahoma, and in that time I've managed to take 19 different dual limits. I've spent dozens of hours trying to put together podcasts on specific species of birds, and I've had a lot of trouble with that for two reasons. One of them is that I'm prone to go off on tangents, and a podcast or a talk uh, intended to be about pheasants or rough grouse could just as likely end up highlighting sharp tails or Wilson snipe. The other problem that I have is that most of my hunting experiences have involved more than one species of bird. Many of you might be aware that I've been attempting to take various dual limits of upland birds for the past I hate to admit it, but I think it's been about 30 years. In describing dual limits, there are two types of dual limits. There's a combination limit that most all of you are aware of, and that's a limit of two different species of birds in the same day. Not the same weekend or the same 24-hour period. You have to take both limits of birds in the same day. And the other dual limit is a hunt that probably hasn't occurred to most of you, And it's a double limit. It's when you take a state daily bag limit of the same species of bird in two states in the same day. I tend to lump them both together, and oftentimes I don't differentiate between a combination limit and a double limit. Now, considering that most of my hunts are combination limits, then It stands to reason that I'm chasing more than one species of bird in the same day, and it's difficult for me to discuss any of those days without including the other secondary species of birds that that I was pursuing. I've determined that it'll be easier for me to stay on topic if I simply talk about specific hunts. Today's talk is going to be about the first dual limit that I ever took, and it was a double limit of rough grouse when I shot three rough grouse in Iowa and five rough grouse in Minnesota in the same day. I've tried to keep this story as factual as I possibly can, and the only thing I can think of that I failed at was my misses. For the most part, I've only spoken about the birds that I shot. It would be fair for you to insert two to five misses in between each one of these birds I did take, except for a short portion at the end where I talk about a time when I went seven straight. That part is factual. I introduced myself to rough grouse hunting back in the mid-70s. That would be 1970s. I was working in the John Deere Foundry, and I had two or three buddies that I'd met through work, and then one guy that I went to high school with that I regularly bird hunted with. And one Sunday morning, I realized that I didn't have anything interesting to do. And I decided that, Hey, I'm going to go up to the Northeast corner of Iowa, specifically up to Yellow River State Forest and see if I can find a rough grouse. I had read a little bit about grouse hunting. Well, I'd probably read a lot about grouse hunting. Um, There had been a little published about rough grouse hunting in the state of Iowa. The season had just reopened in the. I'm thinking about 1972. They went like 40 years without a rough grouse season. I didn't know anyone who'd ever hunted rough grouse. So I decided that I was just going to take a few hours and drive up, and it was about a two-hour drive, and see if I could find a bird. Well, I called my buddies first to see if anyone was interested in going along. And like most prospective endeavors, nobody really wants to go until they know they're going to be successful. And the easiest way to have some assurance of success is to go with someone who's already found and quite hopefully shot a few of the birds, the particular species that you're interested in. So I knew that until I did that, I would be hunting rough grouse alone. But as I said, I headed up to Yellow River State Forest, uh, had my uh, female black lab pitch. Not sure how old she was then. She was only about four, I suppose, four or five. When I found a secluded range of hills, uh, turned pitch loose, I was carrying my Pump Weatherby 12-gauge. When I bought the gun, it had a 30-inch full-choke barrel. I took it out and shot a round of skeet with it, and I remember I broke 16 out of 25 when 22 to 24 was a normal round for me. So I dropped it off at a gunsmith. I told him to hack six inches off the barrel and replace the bead. And when he did that, I took it out the next round, and I shot 49 out of 50. I did order a 28-inch full choke barrel. Back then, the rage was for short barrels. It was kind of like when ultralight fishing rods first came out. Everybody wanted a 4-foot or 4.5-foot ultralight fishing rod, not realizing that you couldn't cast the damn things. Uh Uh-oh, that's a tangent, isn't it? But I have noticed now on various uh, bird hunting forums that everybody's going to longer barrels, even for rough grouse and woodcock hunting. They're talking about 28 and even even 30-inch barrels. Not me. I'm still shooting 24-inch barrels. But anyway, I turned pitch loose, and I'm sure she was hunting as much for uh, squirrels as anything. She'd never been in a woodland environment before. And we got about three-quarters of the way up the first ridge. We start on the valley floor. That's where 90% of the roads are. I could see that pitch was birdie for about three feet, and she quartered sharply to her right, stuck her head under a bush, and there was a whir of wings like I'd never heard before and a brown blur going through the trees. I snapped off a shot and could see it tumbling down. I watched the bird fall, pitch scooped it up, brought it back to me, and I had my first rough grouse. And I thought, "Hell, that was easy." Who who wrote all those books about how hard it was to shoot rough grouse? But uh we hunted a couple more hours and without flushing another bird, and then we ended up on another ridge as pitch was was hustling through a couple of down tree tops on the edge of the timber. A grouse flushed, and I shot, and another one flushed, and I shot, and another one, and another one, and another one. I don't know if I've counted yet, but five rough grouse came out of that one treetop. And I emptied my gun, and I recall even clicking once on an empty chamber, and not one bird fell. That was my introduction to the reality of rough grouse hunting. That was the last time I ever hunted Yellow River State Forest. I realized that a co-worker in the foundry with me was from Dorchester, Iowa. His name was Sheldon. I asked him if he ever saw any rough grouse when he was up running around in that area. And he, oh my gosh, there's a lot of rough grouse. There are rough grouse everywhere. And I asked him about public land and he was, oh hell, you don't need public land. The Farmers up here don't care. No one cares. Just drive up here, drive along the highway along the Upper Iowa River. And when you see something that looks good, just get out and hunt it. That's all we do. Well, his description of of gaining access was pretty much on par. Over the course of probably 15 years of bird hunting up there, I don't recall ever having any landowner refuse me access. Most of them were amazed, especially when you told them you wanted to hunt rough grouse. They couldn't believe that anybody would walk through that kind of cover to shoot those birds. But I got to be pretty good at it. I shot a lot of recreational skeet, and I read every book that I could find and every magazine article on rough grouse hunting. I studied everything about them that I could. Uh, Like I said, I was working chip and grind in a foundry, and that job requires about 10% mental capacity and 90% physical. And so I had a lot of free time at work to relive past grouse hunts. I could remember every flush, every shot, every miss. I could recall the directions the birds flew, which ones were likely reflushes, what kind of cover they initially flushed out of, and the the type of cover that they would land in after that flush. And I could determine their tolerance. I mean, I learned that By how thick the cover was, how close they would even let the dog get. And when you put all that information together over, you know, I only made probably six to 10 trips a year that I went up to hunt rough grouse. So out of probably 50 or 60 trips up there, I pretty well understood where a grouse was going to flush from, the angle that it was going to fly, the cover it was going to fly into, and I got pretty good at that to the point where uh, the three bird state daily bag limit I generally took in a half a day and oftentimes and even less than that and it was opening day of rough grouse season in uh, 1981 that I left my truck at eight o'clock in the morning with pitch and I was back at the truck at eight forty-five with the three bird Iowa limit. Although I was pretty happy that I was able to take a limit that quickly and especially that early in the season when the ninety percent of the leaves were still up. I was frustrated that I looked forward to opening a rough grouse season for nine months every year. I I could not wait to go back up and chase rough grouse and to drive for two hours and spend an hour in the truck waiting for daylight because I got there too early. I was still done hunting in 45 minutes and that was when i had toyed with the idea prior to that of also hunting in minnesota obviously that in the corner of the area that i was hunting i was pretty much always within three to ten miles of the minnesota border and though i could ill afford it i'd been laid off from the foundry in uh i think in 1979 or 1980 and was working for peanuts. There was a real recession in Waterloo, Iowa at that time. And like I say, I could ill afford it. I drove across the border. I stopped at Weebke Fir in, in Minnesota. I bought the non-resident upland game license. I still, to this day, can't believe my check didn't bounce. <laughs> I went to the Winnebago River Valley, just a few miles out of town, knocked on doors. The very first farmer I talked to gave me permission to hunt, And the farmer across the road from him gave me permission, and I shot two rough grouse and a woodcock that afternoon. And I was ecstatic. I never dreamed of being able to shoot five rough grouse in one day. And the best part was that I now knew that I would never have to quit hunting rough grouse early again, because Minnesota had a five-bird daily bag limit. The likelihood that a guy was ever going to shoot eight rough grouse in one day, was just, it was unheard of, well, in my circle. Well, as it turned out, just two weeks later, I was up uh, hunting in Iowa with a buddy of mine, Russ Miller, from the foundry, with the agreement that if I limited out early, I would drop him off on a ridge. He brought his bow. He was into bow hunting then. There was, a, 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 a fall, obviously, a fall archery deer season then. And I would drive to Minnesota and keep hunting rough grouse and then pick him up on my way back. Well, I had my three bird limiter ruffs about 10 o'clock in the morning, and it was snowing really hard, big, wet flakes, and by then there were probably three inches of snow on the ground. We were hunting the back, we called it Pouse's Hollow. We didn't party hunt ever. You... I don't even know what the state law was then, and I certainly don't know what it is now. It was just an unspoken rule that no one shoots a bird on anyone else's license. I was amazed when I ran into guys that actually party hunted. I mean, it was just such a foreign idea to us that anyone would be so selfish as to shoot birds on someone else's license, because to us, that was depriving that other person of his opportunity to hunt. and. We didn't really care about how many birds a group took. I mean, it, it didn't matter. The important thing was that you got to hunt all day. When you did get your birds, you bird dog. You didn't go to the truck. You didn't go sit on a rock out on an outcropping and, and study cloud formations. You busted cover for the guy that didn't have his birds. It's the way we hunted. So once I had my three birds, I, I had Pitch. Russ didn't have a dog at the time, and we kept bird-dogging for us. We were back in, like I said, Pows' Hollow, and Russ was walking just below me on the side of the ridge, and Pitch was working that big ravine up above me, and I saw that she flushed a woodcock. As it passed over the top of my head, I shot, and I was already thinking to myself, this is going to scare the crap out of Russ. Because I, I knew he didn't hear or see that bird. And, and for me to shoot again, he would never expect that. But secondly, when I hit the bird, it came down and it hit him right in the chest. So I had the wonderful opportunity of scaring the crap out of him twice. And after that, once we finished up that hollow, I think Russ had two grouse. He was perfectly content to quit with two and he agreed that we would go back to the truck, eat lunch, and then I would leave him on a, his Beardmore's Ridge, and I would go to Minnesota. As oftentimes has happened to me in the years since then, just crossing state lines messes up my head, or at least it messes up my shooting. I oftentimes will cross a state line and just shoot terrible afterwards. I don't know if it was something to do with the anticipation of trying to shoot another state daily bag limit or whatever it was. But anyway, it was snowing really hard, and there was probably six or six or seven inches of snow on the ground by this time. And I recall I went to a state area, and I flushed quite a few birds, but I shot horribly. I think it was probably three o'clock in the afternoon, and I was almost out of shells, and I only... Picked up two more grouse, which it's kind of hard to say. Oh, gee, I only had five rough grouse that day. Like that could possibly be a complaint. But if you knew how many birds I missed, five rough grouse wasn't that good. I decided that I would stop back in uh, Eitzen at Weebkees and pick up a box of shells. When I was there, they noticed right away when I walked in. I was soaking wet and covered with snow. They asked if I was pheasant hunting. Pheasants. No, no, I'm rough grouse hunting. They said, well, it's just surprising because everybody's out pheasant hunting today. This is opening day. And I thought, well, hell, pheasant season isn't open in Iowa. How cool would it be to shoot pheasants before pheasant season even opens at home? So I knew a farm, the very first farm I ever hunted up there, I flushed three or four pheasants out of a little waterway that drained down into the timber. It was a field of standing corn. I knew that corn was still standing. I drove by it that morning and I thought, I'm going to go back there and just hunt that edge and see if if I could find a pheasant because I sure as hell couldn't hit a grouse. Well, when I went into that timber, I think I probably went in about 50 yards and pitch flushed a grouse that flew really low, probably only about eight feet off the ground. Just as I shot, I knocked the grouse down a white-tailed doe stood up between me and that grouse. That that doe couldn't have been 10 yards away from me. And I remember thinking, geez, if it would have stood up two seconds earlier or even a second earlier, I might have shot that deer. But as we hunted along the outside, I stayed on the outside edge because I was looking for pheasant tracks. But I was seeing a lot of rough grouse tracks. So I thought, until I get up to this waterway, I'm going to stay in the timber. And when we went around a corner, I think we'd probably gone only about another hundred yards, and I was facing a really steep, deep ravine. The cover was particularly thick on my side. This ravine ended up being into that waterway that went up into the standing corn. So I was waiting for Pitch to hunt her way around the corner so we could go up to the point of the ravine, and then I was planning on going up into the waterway. But when she just rounded the corner, she flushed a pair of grouse. And one of them one of them went downhill and the other one flew across the ravine. And I shot the one I shot the one going downhill first, I knocked it down. Then I swung on the one crossing the ravine and I knocked it down. Pitch was right away was heading for the, the bird that just headed downhill. With that much snow on the ground, I really wasn't concerned. It's it's almost difficult to lose a rough grouse anyway. They don't typically run very far, even if they're crippled. If they're not dead when they hit the ground, they oftentimes flap their wings really fast. Almost sounds like drumming. So I just waited on top for Pitch to come back with, her, with the first bird. She did. She was pretty proud of that bird. You know, it was kind of a test for her to see if she... Actually saw the second bird. When I took that first grouse from her, I sent her down the ravine and I could tell by her attitude that she knew there was another bird down there. From my vantage point, it appeared that it fell along the bank on the far side. But when she got down to the bottom, she didn't, she didn't come out. She stayed down there, which was kind of frustrating to me because I was sure the bird was up higher, probably 20 feet higher above her on that far bank. She was down there for a long time. You know, it always seems like a long time when you're waiting for your dog to come back with a bird. But after probably 30 seconds or so that I could actually occasionally see her getting further down that ravine, not down the depth, but following it downhill, I decided to slide down there and take a look before it got tracked up too bad. As I slid down that ravine and got to the bottom, there were grouse tracks everywhere. I was expecting to see one set of tracks and one set of dog tracks, but there were a lot of grouse tracks in the bottom of that ravine. And I could see where the bird hit the bank on the far side. There was a trail of tracks going down, and they, like almost every upland bird, a cripple, 99 times out of 100, runs downhill. Hardly ever does a cripple bird run uphill. So I knew that Bird was probably already down to the bottom of the ravine by the time Pitch got down there, and that's why she didn't go up the far side. Eventually, she came back after probably a minute or more, and she didn't have the bird. I didn't know what to think. By then, the two of us had tracked up that bottom so much that I couldn't discern what tracks might have been from the, the crippled Bird or another bird in you know, she had everything all churned up. In that situation, the only thing I do is I walk, and this is particularly with rough grouse, is I'll walk 20 yards further down than I think the bird possibly could have gone, and then you search for the bird on your way back up because then it's easy from a downhill angle to look up under any rocks, any outcroppings, any logs, any brush, It's just because typically the bird will run down past it and then tuck up underneath it. So I did that, and I was harsh with Pitch. I I couldn't believe it. She just never lost birds. I mean, she was a really good dog. She kept trying to surge up ahead of me, and I had to hold her back because I didn't want her churning anything up any more than it already was. But eventually, we made our way all the way up to where actually above where that bird fell. And there were a lot of logs and dead trees in the bottom of that ravine. Because typically, about every 15 years, the farmers will go around the field edge with a dozer and they push all of the new growth back into windrows to reclaim part of their field. Because over the years that forest regenerates, and it always grows back up and encroaches on their field, and they will come by and, like I said, and push that new growth back. And uh, typically, they'll push it all into these ravines. So it's it's a job when you get down there. Besides all of the lim- big limestone boulders and outcroppings and everything else is down there, and sometimes junk vehicles and farm trash. Besides the vines and berry tangles, you also have to sort through or climb through all of the dead. Debris. I don't know how long it had been, but too long and we, we, we couldn't find that bird. And I was really frustrated because at the time I dropped those two birds, that was my double limit. That was eight rough grouse in a day. When you're 25 years old, that's something to brag about. You don't you don't toss that opportunity away. And I knew I probably only had about 45 minutes of shooting hours left. It was one of those questions, what do you do? Do you just stay down here and hunt for 45 more minutes or search for 45 more minutes and quite probably not find a bird that you've already looked for for 15 or 20 minutes and weren't able to find? Or do you quickly keep hunting? and try to shoot your eighth bird, and just accept that occasionally you're going to lose one. I was young, and I'm like, leave that bird, this pisses me off, but if I don't get it today, I'm going to try to do this again, because now I know it's possible. And I didn't really want to go out and kill eight rough grouse again, just because I I wasn't able to do it today. So we climbed out the far side of the ravine. We were hunting around the, the point and going up to another flat that I knew was really thick and had a lot of brush. And I knew that two or three other birds we had flushed earlier had crossed the ravine and would likely be re-flushes in there. Right away, Bo flushed one, flew straight away, simple, easy shot, as easy as you're going to get on a rough grouse. And I missed it. I'd like to think to this day that. That miss was somewhat intentional. I was angry. I was angry that I lost a bird. I was angry that I shot at another one. I was almost happy that I missed it. And I determined that we're going to go back down in that ravine, and I don't care if it takes us an hour after dark. We're going to find that bird. If we don't find it by dark, we'll go pick up Russ, and he can come back with a flashlight and damn well help us Find that eighth bird, so I crawled pitch in, and we headed back down to the bottom of the ravine. I thought I had a pretty good idea which tangle that bird must have dug into. I decided that I was just going to dismantle it. I didn't care like I said how long or how hard this was going to be. I was going to dig through this brush. There was a lot of eight ten inch twelve inch diameter logs in there that weren't log logs; they were trees. And I just went down there on my hands and knees and started yanking stuff out. And I kept encouraging Pitch to get in there because I knew if she smelled that bird, she'd give me a pretty good idea what I needed to remove in order for her to get it. But she wouldn't stay in there. This couldn't be more difficult. I don't know how long I'd been digging around, but it was several minutes. Pretty soon, I could hear a commotion behind me. When I turned around, like I said, I was on my hands and knees facing uphill in the bottom of this ravine, and I could see Pitch was running as hard as she could towards me up the ravine, and here this crippled grouse was, about five feet in front of her nose, running and flapping like hell. It went right past me. I made a lunge for it, and I missed it, and it dove under a log uh, right in front of me. Sorry for pictures, but good for me and Pitch. She went blasting past me and grabbed that grouse by the tail and we had our eighth rough grouse for pictures but, but it would take more than just a little imagination to turn that tailless bird into the true trophy that it was. Poor Pitch just didn't understand what an event this was. When we scrambled up out of the bottom of the ravine and got out in the open on the top of the field I, I had to empty my coat. I had to make sure that there were five rough grouse in there because this was just, it was just too cool. And when I got all the grouse laid out on the ground, I let out a whoop. I don't, It it even felt kind of childish when I did it. But I was like, my God, this is an unbelievable day. I'm not saying awesome. Everybody says awesome. And I remember I laid down in the snow and I tried to give pitch a hug but she squirmed away from me like what the hell's going on why aren't we let it's not dark let's go hunting i want to apologize here for the way my voice changes throughout this recording i record during different parts of the day and edit it during different parts of the day and my voice always seems to change it's embarrassing but i try to cover it up as best i can but i apologize for that there's something that still seems strange to me today that when i got back to pick up ross it was almost dark he was underneath the highway 76 waterloo creek bridge when he loaded up in the truck and we started to head for home he asked how i did and i told him i i shot five rough grouse in minnesota and he said cool and the whole time i'm thinking he's going to ask me to stop he's going to want he's going to want me to show show him that I have eight rough grouse in the truck, but he didn't. He never even asked, never asked to see them, which, I don't know, it just seemed strange to me, but then I guess it was kind of a testament that he believed me that I would never lie about bird hunting. Well, I'd like to hope he'd think I wouldn't lie about much else, but at least I I would never lie about bird hunting. Now I would hope that most of you listening would be thinking, wow, that's that's some bird hunt, that's some story. But it's it's really not the end. I was so happy when I got home that I called up another buddy, Del Willard, to see if because Russ didn't want to go back up again the next day to see if Del would want to go. This is kind of a screw up. It was okay. It was a real screw up on my part. I had met a new girl that I was dating, and I knew that I was going to be spending the night with her. And Dell was going to stop and pick me up so we could go hunting. I gave him the address, but I hadn't been dating her very long, and I kind of messed up, messed up her address. I I sat around till eight o'clock in the morning waiting for him when he was supposed to be there at five. I finally gave up and called his wife, which I hated to do, and she was no. He he left here hours ago. I can't believe he didn't pick you up. And I was out walking up and down the street. I, I it occurred to me that you know maybe I gave him gave him the wrong address, and I thought he would I'd run into him somewhere. But when I went back and I explained to my girlfriend that it's kind of stuck. I believe my I had a van then, and I believe my van was in the shop. And she said, well, I'm not planning on going anywhere today. Just take my car and go. Know how much you've been looking forward to this? Perfectly fine with me to just stay home and relax all day. So just take my car and go. I'd I'd rather you went and had fun. She was a pretty cool woman. So I did. I drove up and I thought, okay, I'm not going to have that much time. I knew that I was going to get there about 1030 in the morning. And I knew that was enough time to easily shoot three birds in Iowa. But that I I probably wouldn't feel like that would be worth it to load back up and drive to Minnesota and hunt the rest of the day. So I decided to just go straight to Minnesota. And that way I could just stay in one place. I very probably wouldn't get five grouse, so it wouldn't be a big deal. And I could just head home from there. But it turned out that at one o'clock I had the five bird Minnesota limit, so I drove back to Iowa and there was a little pocket that we always called the church cover. It was always good for one or two birds. There weren't a lot in there. It was a big strung out cover that was probably a mile loop, but it just it wasn't great, but it was always worth walking. When I hunted that, it took me forty five minutes, got back to the truck or the to her car got to keep this story straight. And I had two more grouse. And I thought, geez, it's only 2.30. It wasn't getting dark then till I don't know, 5.30 or 6. But I thought, if I shoot an eighth grouse, if I keep hunting and shoot another grouse, then that just illustrates that shooting two-state daily bag limits of rough grouse in one day is not a big deal. If you can go out and do it two days in a row, it's not that special. This should be a a once-in-a-lifetime thing. And so I loaded up and went home. I went home three hours early. And when I got into town, I can still picture the intersection I was at. My buddy that I was supposed to be hunting with pulled up beside me. He was on his way into town, too. And he followed me home. And said, uh, so this is where I was supposed to pick you up this morning? (laughs) Like, yeah, I'm really sorry about that. I said, I'm really sorry you didn't hunt. He said, no, I went hunting. He said, I went to Big Marsh and shot snipe. And he says, but you're back way early. He said, what did you do? And I told him that, you know, how my hunt went, that I started that late. And he said, well, then you must have eight birds again. And I told him no, I said I shot seven, and I had to explain to him why I came home without staying to shoot my last bird and you know i think I think he understood he was a really responsible hunter, still is today, and he would understand why a guy would feel that way that and part of it was you can't you can't go out and shoot sixteen grouse in two days, and not feel like a game hog. I mean, you just just can't do that. At least I couldn't, and I know that he couldn't, and I like to think that most of you couldn't either. Now I'm going to jump ahead a few years. I buried Pitch, it was in 82, and uh, I didn't get another dog right away. Actually, I didn't get another dog for years. I still hunted rough grouse, and I'd moved to, I finally gave up on Waterloo, recovering from the recession, and moved to Minneapolis. I didn't have a job lined up. I didn't have a place to stay. It was desperation to just get the hell out of town before I was even more broke than I already was. I ended up finding work, and Minneapolis turned out to be a really good move for me. And you'd think that that much further north which is not that damn far but that that i would start hunting the north woods because that's all you ever read about you didn't i'd written two articles by then in in field and stream magazine one on rough grouse hunting in iowa and another one on rough grouse hunting south of the cities but in all honesty i thought that the grouse hunting that i was doing in southern minnesota and i just i also started hunting in wisconsin too southwest wisconsin that that bird hunting, having never hunted in the Northwoods, I thought that this was more difficult shooting and hunting than it would be further north. And that was part of what I liked about it. the The hills and ridges were really, really steep. The angles, you had grouse flushing anywhere from 20 or 30 feet above you to the same 20 or 30 feet below you. They were flushing around corners. And I mean, it was really challenging shooting. And I just envisioned the north woods being flat. And, I mean, I knew they would be thick, but I just didn't think that it would be as physically demanding or difficult, as difficult shooting as, as I found down south. And that's what I really loved about rough grouse hunting. Besides, I'd been reading a lot of articles. I talked to Bill Berg. The wildlife or upland bird biologist, I believe he was the woodland bird biologist for the Department of Natural Resources in Minnesota. i read Gullion's book and I knew. And of course, I read their annual drum counts. And there was no question there were more grouse in Southeast Minnesota and Northeast Iowa than there were north of the cities. I, every year, the drum count was higher in the Southeast. I think I looked back for 20 years. And there was one year that one zone in the north was equal to the drum count in the southeast. And the other 19 years and all the other zones were never even close to the drum count in the southeast. So it just didn't make sense that I had all these places to hunt. And I hunted a lot in Minnesota by then from whitewater, uh, wildlife area, down to the border. And like I say, nobody, if Minnesota was just like Iowa, I don't recall ever having one farmer, landowner, tell me no when I asked to hunt rough grouse. So the first few years that I lived in Minneapolis were kind of tough. I had a lot to reclaim. Just before I left Iowa or left Waterloo, it wasn't just that I went, I don't even know, three or four years where I was just barely scraping by income-wise, but my my house got broken into and just about everything i had left of value was stolen all my fishing equipment all my guns um, they took everything and by the time you got done arguing with insurance companies they had you convinced that everything that you owned was worth about 10% of what you paid for it i think the statute of limitations is probably run out by now but i used the money that they gave me for my guns, to buy my guns back. I was convinced the police department wasn't going to find them for me. They gave me a list of everything that I should do to try to reclaim my guns. When I had a really good, I knew my neighbor knew who stole my guns. So I just stopped him one day outside and told him that, you tell whoever took my guns that I'll buy them back from him. And I gave him a certain amount. Two days later, he stopped me and said, hey, I'll have your guns back tomorrow. I bought him my own guns back out of the trunk of his car in my driveway. So at least when I went to Minnesota, I at least had my guns with me. So I didn't have a lot of opportunity to hunt that first couple of years I was up there. And I think I moved there in 83, 85. I moved there in 85. And when I finally was able to afford to take a day or two off work to go hunting, I headed back down to the the southeast corner. It was another day that I got there late. I was on call, and so I couldn't leave Minneapolis till 8 in the morning. I hunted in Minnesota, and of course I was dogless. I hunted in Minnesota that morning, and it was about 1 o'clock in the afternoon. I had my five limit a grouse. Now, I don't know how in the world. I must have stopped at Weeb Key and bought an Iowa non-resident license because I did cross the border and I hunted an area that I'd never hunted before. It was a public corner, it was actually French Creek. When I walked up the ridge, I shot two grouse in probably the first hundred yards. And I had a 35 millimeter camera then, which was a pretty big deal to me because all I'd ever had before that were Polaroids. And I, I still have a couple of pictures that I took of some apple trees that had fruit on them, a yellow one and a red one. I don't know. I was trying to be an artist, I guess. When I was taking pictures of these two trees, they had snow on them. Um, there wasn't very much snow, just a couple inches. I noticed that the bead was missing. The front bead was missing on my shotgun. so. I snapped off a twig off of this apple tree, and I forced it into the hole that the bead had been in, and snapped the end off probably, maybe a quarter of an inch above the the rib of the barrel. Probably not that far, right? Three sixteenths. I left that twig in there for, I'm guessing over 20 years. I didn't even realize. That it was still in there. I was shooting skeet when I had moved back to Waterloo, and one of the guys on the range asked me, "What the, what the hell you got sticking out of your barrel?" And when I looked, I was like, "God, you know," I said, "That's a twig off an apple tree that I stuck that in there twenty-some years ago." That's how often I clean my guns. Uh, that's a confession to make. But anyway, then. I continued hunting along that ridge, and I came to a corner, and I thought, this might be private. I'd never hunted there before, but this was before the days of Onyx, and I did have uh, USGS maps, contour maps, but I thought that this was private, so I stopped, and I just hung out there. I knew nobody cared. I I had never met a landowner who cared. And while I was standing there, a grouse flushed from the private side, and it flew across the fence onto the public side. Just after it crossed the fence, I shot and knocked it down, and that was my eighth grouse. I rationalized this because I still believed that I wanted to write a book on rough grouse hunting, and I thought that it was acceptable to shoot a a double limit of grouse without a dog In contrast to shooting one with a dog, so then my advice or any recommendations that I would make in a book would be viable to anyone hunting rough grouse, with a dog or without a dog. And that's my rationale. And I had many opportunities to do that after, to to attempt to take another double limit. I had one day I hunted in Minnesota, and I shot my five-bird limit in an hour. I drove back to Iowa, and I was determined to find someplace new to hunt. I was driving a little further down a river road than I I normally drove when I was searching. And I came to a really heavy timber. Then there was a big pocket of trees about 50 yards away from the timber, and it looked like it was a pasture. And then there was another timber on top of that ridge, between you know the pocket of trees and the other and while i was slowing down to drive there was snow on the ground i saw five grouse cruising over the hilltop and they all landed on the ground in that little pocket and i mean by pocket i mean it was probably the size probably a thousand square feet that's the size of an average home from there they were 50 yards across bare open space to the nearest timber and 200 yards across open space to the next nearest one. I drove up to the house. I asked for permission, and they were like, what do you want to hunt? They said, all we have is that little pocket of trees out there. And I said, yeah, I think I might have seen some birds fly in there. And they were like, sure, go ahead and knock yourself out. I went back and I parked on the road and I looked at it and thought, I don't need to do this. I don't need to go up there and kill three grouse just because I can. It wasn't even a hard thing to do. I just decided that I always wanted to hunt southwest Wisconsin. I never felt like I had a reason to. So I turned my truck around and drove to Wisconsin. Bought a non resident license, and I ended up shooting two rough grouse there that afternoon. I ended up with seven grouse that day. And I returned and hunted Wisconsin not often. I mean, in two seasons, I probably hunted there 10 times, but I really didn't like it. In Iowa and southeast Minnesota, the typical practice was that the farmers would clear off the hilltops. And plant crops or pasture those. They also, you know, pastured the bottoms, but or cleared off the bottom. So they'd have fields on the hilltops and fields on the bottom. In Wisconsin, they the fields were on the bottom of the ridges. At least this pot, if small area that I hunted, and the hilltops were solid timber. It was easy to get lost up there. <laughs> I did once. I don't know if I have time to tell you this story. I think I probably do. Again, there was quite a bit of snow on the ground. I was living in Minneapolis, and I got permission to hunt. And the farmer said, I got the lane plowed out up into the timber there about halfway up. He said, so you shouldn't, because this was probably, probably at least a quarter of a mile from the base of the timber, the, the hills. And he said, I've got it plowed up there, so you can just drive up there, so you don't have to walk all that way through the snow. And I did, and I hunted a big circle up there. I remember I only shot two grouse. When I circled back around, it was getting dark. And I thought, you know, it's time you got the hell out of here. But it got too dark. And pretty soon, I could see other boot prints in the snow. And I didn't have a dog at this time. So I had to step beside, make a boot print beside the prints that were there, just to make sure that they were mine. I mean, it was that dark that I couldn't even see the tread. And I thought, well, if these are mine, then I just walked in a circle. I mean, the boot prints that I found were facing the same direction that I was walking. And I thought, how the, how the hell am I going to get out of here? That was one of the biggest mistakes. The big mistake that I made that I've since learned is you don't ever leave your vehicle in the timber. Because you have to be right on top of it to find it. Now it's different now. Everybody has GPS, but back then that was one of the stupidest things I could have done. And it was the stupidest thing I did. I was up there and now by now I could see farm lights on in the valleys. And I thought, you know, all you can do is pick, pick a farm light and walk down to it. There's, that's the only way you know you're going to come out on a road. So I did. I finally. Committed to this is as close as I think I can come to where I was. And I walked down out of the timber. Well, I did hit a road and I didn't want to bother anyone. I mean, it was embarrassing. And when I got to the road, I thought, well, just walk down the road till you see a lane that's plowed out going up, back up into that same timber again. As long as I kept the road or the timber, the hill ridge on the same hand, like I was walking with it on my left, then you can't get lost. So I walked along and I thought, geez, here's a lane that's plowed, doesn't really look right. It's probably three-eighths of a mile back to the timber across this field. And then I'd have to walk up into the timber to make sure it's is or isn't the right one. And if it's the wrong one, I have to walk all the way back down again. Because I'm sure not walking through, I mean, it was a lot of snow, like eight or ten inches of snow. I don't think, as I recall, I didn't walk up even the first one. I located the farmstead that I had my eyes on, the lights, from when I was on the ridgetop, and I just walked over to that farm. And when I got there, um, I could hear the commotion in the barn. Almost everybody up there were dairy farmers back then. When I opened the barn door, the farmer and his wife were milking cows. And I had to admit to them, and I left my gun outside, unloaded it and left it out by a tree, obviously. And I told them, I, I'm sorry to admit, I'm lost. I have no idea where I am. And I don't know where I left my truck. So they started asking me questions. Well, what did the house, what was the name on the house when you stopped to ask for permission? I said, I don't know. I just never paid any attention to that they kept asking these questions. And I said, okay, what I can remember was there was a swing set for kids in the front yard. And there was a basketball hoop on the garage. That's about all I can remember. And they had a young, I think it was a young son was in the barn helping him do chores. And they asked him, okay, do you remember that? And he's no, dad, no. And they said, well, your brother rides the bus, run in the house and get your brother. And we'll ask him, well, the older brother came out. He was like probably 10, uh, 10 or twelve, twelve at the most. wasn't very big kid. Came out. They're telling him the story. This man's lost. He left his truck up in the woods, and now we can't we can't figure out where he was at. But he said that the family he stopped at had a swing set and a basketball hoop. And the kid right away says, "Oh, that's so and so. I ride the bus with him." And they just started to laugh. The parents did, and they said, "Do uh, you?" do you have any idea how far away you are? And I said, I haven't a clue. They said, you're seven miles from that farmhouse where you left your truck. And I said, you know how long that would have taken me walking at night? They had their, I'm not kidding. I don't know if they were phone books or Sears catalogs on an old truck seat for this little boy to drive their pickup. And they said, well, he'll give you a ride back to your truck. He knows exactly where he's going. We're going to finish doing chores. Yeah, little kid gave me a ride back. He drove right up into the timber where my truck was. I insisted that he not, but I think he just loved it. And uh, I gave him a $20 bill and thanked him profusely. And that was my story on hunting rough grouse in Wisconsin, and it really soured me on that. I've got another story. What a surprise! I'm huh? doing podcasts, and I have stories, but I'll try to tell this one a little faster. I'd also read about guys, you know, running straights on rough grouse. I thought if I'm going to present myself as some kind of an authority, now I'm talking about a 30-year-old guy, you know, who's been hunting rough grouse for 10 years, less than 10 years, and I just felt like I had to be an authority. I had to be somebody who exceeded the abilities that most people would expect from even a very good grouse hunter. I'd gone three straight a few times, but I don't know if I even ever went four straight. But on one particular day, again, I was dogless. I was hunting in Minnesota. The leaves were down, but there was no snow. It wasn't terribly late in the year. And I went five straight. I was hunting alone, and I remember... My fourth and fifth bird were a clean double. I was almost back to the truck, and I stepped down in a ravine, and a pair of grouse flushed on the other side. They were flying about 10 feet apart, and I shot and dropped both of them. Now, obviously, I thought that was pretty cool, because I had read an article or something that someone wrote, and I think he said he knew three guys that had gone five straight on rough grouse before. And I thought, there, I'm number four. I've done it, too. When I got home, I called up a buddy of mine, Del Willard, to see if he wanted to go the next day because I thought, and I even told him, what I really want to do is I want to hunt Iowa to go three straight in Iowa. I want to be able to say that I shot two limits without missing a bird. He said, well, he'd like to go, but he'd already planned. He was going to buy a Brittany Spaniel from a, a started dog from a guy's name was Jimmy Joe. He'd already committed to going grouse hunting with him. He wanted to watch the dog work before he bought it. And he said he wasn't comfortable just inviting me along because this Jimmy Joe was taking him someplace, which is totally understandable. As it worked out, it was kind of a convoluted day, but I started out the day hunting ducks with a buddy of mine, Russ Miller, on the same ridges we hunted rough grouse on. And we shot a limit of mallards in the morning. And then the arrangement was that I would go meet the Dale Willard and his buddy and hunt with them and their dog uh, for rough grouse the rest of the day. Well, I got to the public area, and a trout fisherman pointed up on top of a ridge and said, yeah, there's two guys up there, and they've been shooting all morning. So I started up the ridge, and I got just to the shoulder. There's a break where it's really the hill is really steep, and a grouse flushed in front of me, and I dropped it. I took about five steps, and another one flushed, and it flew just to the side, like 20 feet off of where this one was, the first one, and I shot and dropped it, and I'm like, oh my God, I'm seven for seven. When I got about halfway up there to pick them up, and I felt like I hit both of them really hard. When I got about halfway to them, a grouse flushed where the second one fell, and it caught me completely off guard, but this had happened one or two times before. Where I typically, when I was shooting rough grouse, I tended to overlead them. I was more concerned with hitting them in the front end than the back end because they were really tasty birds, and the fewer pellets I left in them, the happier I was. So I tried to hit them in the head and neck. But there have been a couple of times when I'd knocked them down and went over to pick them up, and even with pitch years earlier, I had grouse get up and fly off again as if they were never injured at all. I thought that's what just happened, so quickly I shot at it, and I missed and then i was I was really dejected first of all, I thought you you didn't go eight straight, and if that was your seventh bird, you can't even say you got seven. You're gonna say you only went six straight so. I picked up the first bird, it was laying there dead, right where I expected, and I went to look for the second one, and I couldn't find it. And I looked for quite a while, and then I heard those guys shoot not too far away, sounded like they were just a couple hundred yards away on the other side of this ridge. There was an alfalfa field on the outside edge. I found a stick, and I laid it even with the area that that second bird fell. So coming back, I would be able to at least locate that general area. Got over the hill, Dell and Jimmy Joe were there, and Dell said right away, Okay, we heard you shoot three times. That means you got at least two grouse. And Jimmy Joe says right away, Come on, nobody's that good. I told him the story. I knocked down two, and then I missed the next one. I, I don't, and I can't find the second one. I don't know what happened but I really feel like I hit that second bird hard. But if you don't mind, can we go over there with your dog and just make a pass through there and see if, if, if it's there? They both agreed. Well, we walked through, and I stayed on the outside edge watching for my stick, but we had circled through about a 100-yard stretch of that. I never found the stick, and we didn't find the bird. We got 150 yards from there, and I said, "Yeah, Hey, you guys keep going. I'm going back. I can't believe that that bird isn't laying there dead somewhere. I'm going back to look. So I left them and circled back, and I was walking along the edge of the field looking for my stick, and I found the grouse instead of my stick. It had actually made it to the very outside edge of the timber. I was inside the timber. When it fell, it fell like 15 or 20 feet further out than I thought. So then I felt much better. I thought, well, okay, at least you you went seven straight. It's not eight, but it is seven. I cut across the field to catch up with him. And when I did, Dell was hunting on the downhill slope, and uh, Jimmy Joe was hunting on the top. And I caught up with him. I asked Dell to come up, because the higher up on the slope you were, the more likely you were to get a shot. He refused. And so I asked Jimmy Joe to stay on top, and he said, no, you're already up there. Just stay there. Well, we didn't go probably... 50 yards, and we heard a grouse flush on the downhill slope, which doesn't happen very often, and Del shot, and he yelled, coming up, which doesn't happen either. They don't hardly ever fly uphill. Pretty soon, I could hear it getting close, and I heard Jimmy Joe shoot, and I could hear the grouse was still coming. I was just over the crest of the shoulder, and when that grouse came over, it was only about 15 feet above the ground, And it saw me right away. And it was 25 feet from me. As soon as it saw me, it banked sharp to to the left because there was a big old coal oak tree. All the typical straight-trunked, non hollow trees, they would log off. But if they had a big old gnarly tree that had a lot of branches close to the ground, wouldn't make good lumber, then they typically just left them. They're the trees that get big and old and gnarly. It was flying right straight towards that tree. And there was a huge branch coming off that I could see there was about a three foot opening between the trunk and this branch that this grouse was going to fly through once it got through there in like another twenty feet. I wasn't going to see it again that it'd be obscured, so I knew I had to shoot fast and that it would be very close when I do that. I try to shoot about six inches in front of their beak. The reason is that I know even with a cylinder bar. My shot pattern is going to be about 6 or 8 inches at 25 feet. This way, I'm either going to hit him in the head or neck, or I'm going to overlead him and I'll miss them completely. Because the last thing I ever wanted to do was to turn a rough grouse into a pile of spaghetti. And that's what happens if you center one at 25 feet. I don't care what kind of a, of a choke you're using. I swung about 5 or 6 inches in front of its beak. I shot, and... There's one way you can always tell when you shoot a bird that close, and especially, I got to say in the head, because only one other time can I remember that I shot one like that in the body, that I didn't lead it enough. But the feathers look like hair. It shreds their feathers. And when you look in the air all around them, it just looks like real fine hair falling down. I was pretty sure that I hit that bird in the head and neck. Well, Dell started yelling out, good shot, good shot right away. And I didn't realize at this time that he liked to brag about me and challenge me at the same time. He was always looking for someone who could shoot better than I could, which was mostly faster. And he liked to tell people how good I was and then go out with me and let me, I guess, show them. I'm not that good a shot anymore. That's my disclaimer. I am not. I shoot well enough that I'm happy. I quit shooting recreationally 25 years ago. Every once in a while, I'll go shoot 8 or 10 rounds in a summer. I didn't shoot at all last year. I don't know if I shot at all the year before. I think three years ago, I probably shot 10 rounds. I don't need to kill everything. So Dell and Jimmy Joe both came up on top because Jimmy Joe wanted his dog to prove another retrieve. And the whole time I'm thinking, yeah, you aren't, you aren't going to need a dog to find this bird. It's laying here about 20 feet away, and it doesn't have a head or neck. When they got up there, his dog was out searching around for the bird. Because it was quite a ways. I mean, the dog wasn't within 40 yards of that bird when I shot. His dog was out in front of him, and downhill, wouldn't have even been able to see that bird. While we're talking, Dell kept saying, you know, that was a really good shot. He said, did you hit him where you wanted to? And I said, yeah, I think so. Dale said, I knew. I knew you were going to get him. I knew when he flew up there you were going to get him. And Jimmy Joe repeated what he'd said earlier. Jesus, you know, nobody's that good. When his dog brought the bird back, it dropped it on the ground right by us. I picked it up, and Jimmy Joe wore one of those belt straps with the wire loops on them that duck hunters used to use years ago. You hang your bird by the head. So I think he had two grouse hanging from his belt. I told him, you know, I know we don't really know each other that well, but I said, I really screwed up this morning. I shot my limit of mallards, and I was in such a hurry to start grouse hunting that I didn't take them out of my coat. With these other two grouse, my game bag's full. I said, if you don't mind, would you carry this bird for me? And he said, oh, sure, sure, I will. And I handed it to him. When, when he looked to hang it up, he saw that, it didn't have a head or neck that they were completely shot off. And Dell was just beaming. He said, you know, he does that on purpose. And Jimmy just, what? He said, when they're really close, he shoots their heads off so he doesn't ruin any meat. And I've seen him do it a lot. I probably shouldn't have even included that last story in here, but as I mentioned, Today, I don't think I could shoot the head off a dead chicken at 10 feet if he was tied to a post. I hope you enjoyed this last hour and look forward to my next podcast highlighting the second dual limit that I took, three rough grouse and a fall turkey in Iowa. The third podcast in this series will be three sharptail grouse in Nebraska and three sharptail grouse in South Dakota in the same day. The fourth one will be three sharptail grouse and three pheasants in South Dakota the fifth one will be five rough grouse and five woodcock in Minnesota. And the sixth one will be back on the prairie with five Hungarian partridge and three sharptail grouse in North Dakota. I'm your host, Randy Shepard, from My Dog Hunts. Thanks for tuning in.